Well, good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, my name's Tony, and one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting with us, it's great to have you with us. And uh, just for your information, or if you've forgotten, if you're coming here regularly, we're working our way uh, through Matthew's Gospel, um, and we're going to be in it until Easter, which is, uh, according to my calculations, which could be rough and wrong, uh, around five weeks away, uh, something like that. Um, But where we find ourselves in Matthew today, which is chapter 22, is actually about five days away from the resurrection of Christ. So less than that uh, to the crucifixion, uh, just a few days before Easter is where we find ourselves today, roughly Tuesday, Passion Week. Um, And the hostility towards Jesus, if you were here last week that we saw then, uh, is reaching kind of epic levels. It's uh, white hot from the religious leaders towards Jesus, which is precisely what he said would happen three times prior to it happening. Uh, The last of which he said just a couple of chapters earlier, which we find in chapter 20 uh, and verse 17 to 19. Uh, just, Just to remind you, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He said this on the way up to Jerusalem. He is now in Jerusalem, and things are getting pretty intense. So we pick it up today in chapter 22 and verse 15 uh, through to verse 46. We're going to read that together now. So if you've got a Bible, open up with me to Matthew 22 uh, or push the app on your phone, whatever you need to do, and uh, let's read this passage together. There's a lot in it, um, so it would be helpful for you to have it in front of you. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 15 and following. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all the women died. In the resurrection, therefore, 
of the seven whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, and the prophets. Verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you as we uh, read this part of Matthew's account uh, and the things that are recorded here as the, the tension and it heats up as you are heading towards Jerusalem, uh, you are in Jerusalem and heading towards the cross and your resurrection and your suffering. Would you please teach us this morning? Will you by your spirit take your word and bring it home to our hearts and lives for our good and for your glory and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this morning I'm going to pretty much do what we've been doing for the last few weeks, that is kind of go through the, the narrative again and draw out various things, but then at the end look at some kind of ways that it lands for us in our day. So what we see and what you notice there probably as it was read to us is that there are three different attempts to trap or entrap Jesus in order to get rid of him. Uh, in each case, Jesus' responses leave those who have come to test him kind of astonished and stopped in their tracks. But also his responses at the same time not only stop those who are trying to question him, but also reveal significant truths to them and for us as well, for us to consider. So let's have a look at each trap just real briefly. Trap number one, of course, is the trap of paying taxes. Uh, notice the intent, it's really clear up front, isn't it? In verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him or to entrap him, you could say, in his words. They want to entangle him. They want Jesus to incriminate himself so that they can build a case to have him tried. 
Uh, there's unlikely allies in this passage as well. Uh, there's the Pharisees, or the disciples of the Pharisees at least, those who were learning in the school of the Pharisees, and there were the Herodians, the kind of the Greeks. Uh, they were not normally kind of, you know, hanging out together very much. They were not allies, they were the opposite, but they kind of gathered together to lay out this trap. And you notice how they buttered Jesus up. You know, we know that you are true. We know that you are a teacher. We know that you don't care about what other people say. Well, here's our question. Should you pay taxes to Caesar? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, they think they've probably got him on this one. Because if he says yes... They should pay taxes to Caesar. Well, that puts him at odds with the Jews who are being oppressed by Rome and overtaxed by Rome. And so they think the taxes are uh, irrelevant and should not be paid. So if he says, yes, you should pay taxes, then he's at odds with them. If he says no, well, then he's at uh, odds with the Herodians who are in favour of uh, the taxation and he would be at odds with the Romans. Either way, it would help them build a case against him in their effort to get rid of him. So again, Jesus' response, as it often is, is quite masterful in verses 19 to 21. Do you see it there? Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him the coin and Jesus said to them, Whose inscription or likeness is this on the coin? Obvious question, obvious answer. They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now the point that he's making is pretty clear, but it's deeply challenging to both them and actually to us. Essentially, Jesus says that if Caesar's image is on it, then he's entitled to the tax. You must give to him what is rightfully his. Not rocket science, it's his coin. So on. But then comes the kicker from the lips of Jesus in the second half of that verse. Render to God's what is God's. In other words, whose image is on you? We are made in the image and likeness of God, and they were too. And so Jesus says, render to God's that which is God's. In other words, give God the glory due to his name as someone made in his image and his likeness. He is entitled to that. So that's trap one. Trap two was the trap of marriage at the resurrection. So we have another group of Jewish leaders coming up to Jesus, a group called the Sadducees, and as verse 23 makes clear, they don't believe in the resurrection. So they are sad, you see. Sorry about that. Just a dad joke with some Christian kind of influence. Um, anyway, it's one way to remember who they are and what they don't believe. So the trap that they bring concerns the resurrection, doesn't it? And notice they try and do it with scripture. They say in verse 24, Moses said in the law, which we know is very important, that if a, 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 wife die, a man dies and he has no children, then uh, the brother must take the wife and marry her and give some descendants for 
his brother. So they quote, it's called the Leverite vow, I think, uh, that they're quoting from. And they tell the story and there's seven guys who all die, you know, and then she dies. And, you know, the question, of course, is um, at the resurrection, like, whose wife is she? Uh-huh. And Jesus flat out says to them, you are wrong, uh, verse 29, because neither do you know the scriptures, which they're quoting, trying to use against him, nor do you know the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus pictures a future, a resurrection future, that is, a, that is beyond our present reality as we know it. And he affirms the reality of the resurrection by quoting from guess who? Well, kind of Moses, but from where it all began for Moses. Remember what happened when God said, appeared to Moses? Do you remember what God said to him at that stage? This is Exodus 3, 5 and 6, the burning bush. God appears to Moses. He's going to call him to lead his people out of Egypt. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you stand or you are standing is holy ground. And he said... I am the Lord, sorry, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look. This is exactly what Jesus quotes, isn't it? And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So the point is clear again. By this stage, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob have long died. But if Abraham and his seed are to be the covenant people of God forever, then it's implied that he must raise them. He is not the God of the dead, but of the God of the living. So there's the second trap. Now the third trap is the trap of God's law. So the, th- the Pharisees hear that uh, he's silenced the Sadducees. It doesn't say that they're happy about that, but I'm guessing they're probably pretty chuffed because they have a lot of conflict between each other, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they hear that he's silenced the Sadducees. They gather together and one of them, a lawyer, one of their kind of you know, in, you know, smart guys, asks him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So again, they're coming to test him. They're coming to trap him. If they can get him to say that one commandment in the law is greater, then they're going to also get him to reduce some others, which they could use again as a basis for bringing a case against him. But again, Jesus is masterful. He goes straight to what, known, what is known as the Shema, which is the key text or key commandment that Jewish people quoted every single day of their life, if not multiple times a day. It comes out of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, and this is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He quotes the Shema, central to their lives. There's no way that they're going to argue with him on that one, right? But notice he goes further. 
He says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. And then he says, and all the law and the prophets depend on these. So not only does he highlight the Shema, their most precious commandment, that they all supremely value, he connects it to all of God's commandments. And again, they have nothing further to say. Their trap spectacularly fails. Now what's particularly interesting, uh, though, is that in every test of theirs that Jesus passes, they themselves turn out to be the ones that are shown up as missing the mark. They are the ones who, though they are made in God's image, are not giving him the glory that's due to his name. They are the ones who are not focused on the reality of the resurrection, let alone being ready for it. They are the ones who have not loved the Lord their God with all their hearts, soul, mind and strength. And notice what Jesus asks them next as he kind of wraps it up. He asks them a question in verse 42. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They say, the son of David. Tick. Correct answer. He is the descendant of David. But then comes the follow-up from Jesus. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your, uh, uh, under your feet. I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, this is a direct quote from Psalm 110 that they know full well, the same psalm that the Apostle Peter preached from in Acts chapter 2 when he preached about the resurrection of Jesus. It's one of the most famous psalms. And the question is, how is it that David calls him Lord? What do we have here in this psalm? We have David... We're told by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, calling his messianic descendant Lord. And the only way you can make sense of this is to see this little quote from this psalm as a conversation within the Godhead itself, between the Father and the Son. God the Father and God the Son, the Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make or put your enemies under your feet. God the Father saying to God the Son. What we see here is that Jesus is not only David's son, 
But what becomes clear as we look closer is that he is also David's Lord. He is the son of David, the promised Messiah, but he is also the son of God and God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, who, as Matthew has already told us in the first chapter, will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us whose name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The king who saves. And so do you see what this means in what we've been looking at? Let's revisit it. The one whose image we bear was right in front of them. The one who is, to be given, who is to be given the glory due to his name was right in front of them. The one who will bring about the resurrection, who guarantees the resurrection, the one before whom we will all stand on that day was right in front of them. And the one who is to be loved with all our hearts, souls, minds and strength, the God who makes gracious covenant relationship with undeserving sinners, again was right in front of them. And yet, they are about to reject him. Friends, as we're, they're not, not only is he in front of them, but as we've worked our way through Matthew's gospel, he's right in front of us. And the question is, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What are you going to do with him? How are you going to respond to him? He has shown us radical things in this passage that can transform our lives into eternity. And here they are. We've touched on, on them already. We are God's image bearers. In his world. Friends, this is about our identity as people that we have from God. An identity given to us by God. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and verse 27, where we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Jesus says to them as he holds out this coin, whose image is this? And his point is clear. You bear the image and likeness of God as a human being. So give him the glory that's due to his name. This is who we are, friends. This goes right to our identity. This is what we're made for. This is actually what gives us dignity and worth and purpose and self-understanding to, to be those who bear the image of God in his world. Isn't it wonderful? Maybe that you weren't, when you were coming in today, that wasn't what you were thinking about yourself. Isn't this wonderful in a world that's so confused when it comes to identity?
It's probably the biggest challenge of our generation. Well, not my generation, but the one that's coming up. It's a challenge for mine too, but even more so. In a culture that's lost its clear sense of who we are as people, even as human beings. And you know what happens when we lose our true identity given to us by God, don't you? We begin to create our own. Only resulting in an identity that is less than what it means to be truly and fully human. Friends, we weren't meant to create our own identity. We were meant to bask in the identity that God has given us. And to live out the glorious purpose wrapped up in it, to bear his image in his world, wherever he has placed us. And you can do that no matter where and no matter what you're doing. You can do that as a mum at home. You can do that as an engineer in the CBD. You can do that as a tradie in the suburbs. You can do that as a, as a university student on campus. You can do that in your high school, in your primary school. You can do that in the shops when you go to the till. You can do it everywhere. Bear God's image in his world. Now, as it helpfully reminds us of our identity, it also, um, I'd say helpfully, yes, reminds us of our idolatry. Because at the same time as we see the wonder of our identity given by God, we're also confronted with our idolatry before him, failing to render to God's what is God's. If we're honest, we haven't done that, have we? Not consistently. And we try and find our identity in other things, in, in our competence or in the praises of others or in our beauty or in our strength or fill in the gap. And so we fail to give God the glory due to his name. Perhaps even this morning, you know, it's, isn't it bizarre we can do this even as we gather for the purpose of giving God the glory to his name. You and I can be sitting there and our lips can be saying his name and our hearts can be far from him, even in the gathering that is designed for giving God the glory of his name. We can be here and we can be half-hearted. So just as we're, as we're reminded of the beauty of our identity, we're also confronted with maybe the ugliness of our idolatry. At the same time, we're made in God's image to bear that in his world. Secondly, we're raised to stand, we will be raised to stand in the presence of Jesus. He makes it clear of the reality of the resurrection, the reality of life after death, that the grave is not the end and that we will be raised to stand before him one day which gives us great hope, doesn't it? Maybe not if we're 21, you know, because we're already kind of, you know, eternal at that age, aren't we? But maybe if we're 51 or 61 or 71, it kind of gets a little bit sharper. Hope beyond the grave. But 
the resurrection and the reality of the resurrection is also something that should make us take stock of our lives. If we're going to be raised to stand in the presence of Jesus, the question is this, are we ready? Are we ready? Are we right with our maker? And can we be right with him on that day? Particularly when, as we've seen, none of us have given him the glory that's due to his name. All of us are guilty of idolatry to some extent. How can we be right with him at the resurrection? Hold that thought. We'll come back to it. Thirdly, we see God's greatest commandment and our greatest need. As Jesus identifies the greatest commandment, at the same time, do you notice that he exposes human hearts? Just notice the reach of this commandment. Did you see it? Love the Lord your God, he says, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. All your heart. <laughs> Ooh, whoops. All your soul, that is every part of who you are at the centre of your being. Oh dear, this is not getting any better. And all your mind, which you apply to all sorts of things. No one has done that, hey? Oh, except for Jesus. And then he says, the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. Like, eh, pretty sure there's been quite a few times where, according to Jesus, I've been angry with people who are around me, and that, according to him, is if I, it's not only is it not loving, he, he dubs that as murder. Ah, oh, that's in Matthew 2, by the way, Matthew chapter 5. And then he says, All the law and the prophets depend on this commandment, so if you break these, guess what? You break the whole lot, which is true of all of us. Unless, of course, you're not like me. So maybe if, you, if you're not, come and, come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to chat with you. You see how this greatest of the commandments reveals our greatest need? We are guilty of breaking God's law. We are therefore justly under God's just judgment. We need our sins forgiven. We need someone to rescue us, someone who can deal with our sins and someone who will. Which leads us to the final thing. We're back to where we started. The king who saves. Jesus asks the question, what do you think about the Christ? And in light of what we've seen today, it's the most important question you could ask, don't you think? It's the question that's been in play, actually, since chapter 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? You see, he needs to be far more than the religious leaders thought he was to truly save us. He needs to be far more than just a descendant of David, some kind of political figure who will come and, and you know, overthrow the Romans and set up the kingdom of Israel again. He needs to be far more than that. He needs to be far more than just someone who's a good example that we're supposed to follow or a good teacher that we're to try and kind of learn from. No, he needs to be a saviour who was able to make sinners like you and me right with God by dealing with our sins. 
And that, friends, is precisely who he is and precisely what he's come to do. He is God himself, found in appearance as a man, who is to be called Jesus because he will save all those who come to him from their sins. Yes, he is David's son, but he is also David's Lord, son of man and son of God. He's the one who, can, who has come, who will die on a cross, making atonement for our sins. He is the one who will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we come to him in repentance and faith. And so the question is this, who, what do you think about the Christ? And based on your conclusion, will you come to him in repentance and faith? Will you turn from running your life your own way with your crown on your head, running your own ship? Will you repent of that? which is failing to give God the glory due to his name and ignoring the fact that you are made in his image, will you turn from that and will you come to the one who has come to save you from doing that and put your hope and trust in him once and for all? Have your sins forgiven and be made right with God? He's the one who can do that and he's the only one who can do that. And wonderfully... He is the one who has the power to redeem the purpose of Jesus in our lives. Enabling us by his grace and his salvation to again begin to give God the glory due to his name. That's how powerful his salvation is. He restores that lost identity and that lost purpose. And he's the one who has the power to change our hearts. So we start to love God like never before. Not perfectly in this life, but far more than we ever did before. He's the king who saves. And he's gone to great lengths on our behalf to do so, as we'll see in the lead up to and then over the Easter weekend. So let me ask you as we close in the words of Jesus, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you so much for your kindness to us, especially in your son, the Lord Jesus, in sending him into the world on our behalf to rescue us from ourselves, from our sins, to make us right with you so that we could one day stand at the resurrection unashamed in your presence in right relationship with you, almighty God, forever. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. We have strayed, but you come after us, and you come after us through your word, by your spirit, and you remind us where we've strayed, and you call us back. Please help us to give you the glory due to your name. Please help us to bask in the identity that we have, having been made in your image. 
Such a diverse group of people and yet all made in the image and likeness of God with the glorious calling to bring him glory in his world. In whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we're called to do it to the glory of God. Father, thank you for this. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the son of David, the promised Messiah. You are the son of God sent from heaven. You've come to be our saviour. May that be true of us this morning. May we turn from any other thing we're trusting in and put all our trust in you to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To cleanse us from our unrighteousness, to forgive us our sins, to make us right with you, the true and living God. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus and for him. Amen.